It was in 1857 that Charles Spurgeon would preach to what was perhaps the largest gathering of people assembled to hear one of his sermons. Um, By one count, 23,654 people. The location of this gathering was the Crystal Palace in London. So a day or two before Spurgeon was to preach at this place, he went there and he surveyed the grounds. He wanted to see where the platform should be established. And he also set about checking the acoustics in the auditorium. And to do so, he quoted rather loudly John chapter 1, verse 29. Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. Now as he shouted this out, he notes in, in one accounting, um, he notes how there was a worker who was in the gallery, uh, one of the galleries, who had no idea what was being done in the building. So just imagine this man. He's working in one of the galleries. He's working on something. And all of a sudden he hears this booming voice saying, John 129, Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. Spurgeon, as he recounted the story, he said that the man, he had heard the verse of Scripture. He put down his tools. The message came like, like, like from heaven into his soul. It came like a message from heaven into his soul. He felt conviction of his sin. He went home, and as Spurgeon notes there, after a season of spiritual struggling, he found peace and life by beholding the Lamb of God. It's a story that well illustrates the power of God's Word. As does the passage that is before us today in the book of the prophet Haggai. The Word of God can beget new life, and the Word of God can also beget a fresh obedience. It's the latter that we see before us in Haggai chapter 1, verses 12 through 15. Now, it's been a couple of weeks since we were in the first 11 verses of the book of the prophet Haggai, and you might remember that we saw Haggai give God's message, particularly to the leaders of that returned remnant in Jerusalem, Zerubbabel and Joshua the high priest. And then by extension, the remnant of the people, they would hear the message as well. And you might recall, I won't rehearse all of the history that I did a couple of weeks ago, but you might remember that this remnant got off to a good start. They were part of that small group of around 50,000 Jews who returned to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple, and they got off to a great start. But then all of a sudden, there was a work stoppage for about 16 years. And during that time, if you recall, the people were not seeking first the kingdom of God. Their priorities became twisted. They built and they paneled their own houses, while the house of the Lord, the temple of Yahweh, lied in ruins. Public worship took a back seat to personal pursuits. Their lives were essentially rebuilt in Jerusalem, but the problem was their lives were not built around God. Life became about padding their houses. When circumstances got a little bit hard, life became about earning a living. Life was not built around the worship and work of God. Now, one of the things I think is important for us to remember even, even now, even early on in our review right here, is for us to say how scary it is to think that kind of thing can happen to us when we have the gospel. 
We have the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ that our Savior died on the cross for our sins and then we can make Christianity this thing that goes to the periphery and finds so many ways to justify having God put on the periphery. Everything else deserves central place. There's always a justification. There's always a reason for why other things can crowd out God and they can have the center and we can justify God getting moved to the periphery when we have the gospel. And it could be things... Like baseball, it could be things like kitchen remodeling. It could be overworking during the week. It could be the overpursuit of extracurricular activities on the weekend, whatever it might be. It's scary to think that it's not only that this kind of thing can happen to the remnant in Jerusalem, it could happen to those of us who know the gospel. And if there's ever a people who should have Christ at the center of everything, dominating every aspect of our lives, it should be the people of God with the full counsel of Scripture. Yet so often God can take a back seat. Personal pursuits can take a front seat. The worship and work of God can take a back seat. And that's the kind of thing that happened to the remnant in Jerusalem. The things that ought to have been peripheral on the periphery, they became central. And that which ought to have been central was moved to the periphery. Under the guise of good excuses. It's just not time yet. I want to. It's just not time to build the Lord's house yet. And it was into that situation, if you remember, that the Lord sent his prophet Haggai with A, a rebuke. Life-changing results would come from a rebuke. Let us note that, by the way. It was going to be a rebuke from the Word of God that was going to change the lives of the people of God in Jerusalem. So God sent his prophet Haggai with a rebuke. He also sent him with revelation so that the people might understand why they were going through the providential hardships that they were going through. God was basically saying, I'm the one who's behind the hardships that you're enduring. I'm the one who's ultimately behind it, and I'm using it to get your attention, but you don't seem to be paying attention. It was God who sent Haggai, not only with a rebuke, he sent him with revelation, and he also sent him with instruction. Haggai chapter 1, verse 8. This is what you're going to do. The time for inaction is done. The time for putting me at the center and at the focused position of your life in the place of preeminence, it's now. You go up to the mountains, you get timber, and you start rebuilding the temple. And he even gave them the proper motivations that were to undergird their action. You do this not because you're trying to earn right standing with me or something like that. You build the temple so that I may take pleasure in it and be glorified. That's the motivation. The Lord sent his prophet right into that scenario with those things for the people. Uh, in our study of 2 Samuel, some of you might know if you're kind of going through the audio messages that are um, coming out on Tuesdays for 2 Samuel, I preached two messages on 2 Samuel 12 entitled, The Grace That Chases and Chastens. And the context of those passages was 2 Samuel chapter 12, where you might recall David was in a state of unrepentance. He was in a state of unrepentance, and we don't get the impression that it was going to change on its own. And into that situation, where there's an unrepentant David, an unrepentant king, God sends his prophet Nathan. And he sent Nathan with a parable that was meant to expose David's hypocrisy and unrepentant sinfulness. And without going into all the details, the mission was a success. The grace of God chased down David and chastened David. 
And that's the kind of thing you have happening here in Haggai's day. The people were in a state of indifference. The people were okay with their excuses. And into that situation, the grace of God chased them down and chasing them and wait till you see the results that came from God's rebuke and God's chastening. We're going to see it in the passage before us. And we see it right away, as a matter of fact, in verse 12. And that's where we begin. Haggai chapter 1, verse 12, where we read, Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people showed reverence for the Lord. Look at what the Word of God can do. Look at the difference the Word of God can make. That's what we're going to look at. Now, I do want to say before we get there, there's so much that can be said about this verse. There's a lot. I'll just call attention to five things briefly. We could look at the leaders to whom the word of the Lord first came and how they likely modeled repentance, as ought to be the way with leaders, even in the local church today. They likely modeled it, seeing as they're listed first here, and they were the ones that received the word of God initially. I could call your attention to the word remnant in verse 12 as well. That word remnant basically speaks of a remaining portion. You hear the word remnant and you think of a couple of things. You think of how judgment had come upon the people and there was a remaining portion. There was a remnant, a remaining portion that returned from Babylon to rebuild. Some commentators also note a kind of positive connotation with that description since the people had become obedient to Haggai's message. I could call your attention to this, and I love this. This is amazing. Look at the synonymous nature in verse 12 between the voice of the Lord and the words of Haggai the prophet. It's as though they're one and the same. To hear the voice of the Lord was to hear the words of Haggai the prophet. Our ears should be perked when we read that. Because when you're hearing the words of Haggai the prophet, you're hearing the voice of the Lord through the text of Scripture. There's more I could call your attention to. We're reminded of the gracious nature of God in that He sent Haggai. You look at the language, as the Lord their God had sent him. The people didn't submit a prophet request form. We're looking for a prophet. Not sure if we're doing the right thing or not. Got a prophet you could send to us? No, nothing like that. It was God who sent Haggai. As the Lord their God sent him right into their indifference. How gracious God is. See the gracious nature of God. Call your attention to one more thing. Remember earlier, we saw that God identified the people, not as my people, but as this people? Well, now you get a hint here. Well, he called them that, this people, because they weren't acting like his people. But here there's a different identification. They're identified as those who were essentially serving, those who sought to um, heed the voice of the Lord their God. They were starting to look like the people of God again. They were starting to look like God was indeed their God. So there's a lot that we can say about verse 12. But I want to call your attention to two things in specific. Uh, specifically, I want you to see what the Word of God does here. First, look at how the Word of God compels obedience in His people. God rebuked the people. He exposed the hypocrisy of their excuses He told them over and over again, twice, repeatedly, to consider their ways. He exposed their misplaced priorities. He told them, I'm behind the difficulties that you're having with the drought and so on. 
He told them the time for inaction had come to an end and it was time to work and build the Lord's house. And as a result, what do we see? Zerubbabel, Joshua, and per the text, all the remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. The catalyst in this reaction, if you will, was the Word of God. Do you know how amazing this moment is in redemptive history? This would be the kind of thing like the prophet Isaiah, who was called to preach a people who hearing would not hear and seeing would not see. It's the kind of thing that Isaiah would look at and be like, what? They all what? They all obeyed? It's the kind of thing that the prophet Jeremiah, read through the book of Jeremiah. It's the kind of thing Jeremiah would probably be like, really? Like you just, I've been preaching for a long time. You just don't see these kind of things happen. But they do happen. And they don't just happen among Ninevites. They happen among the return remnant of the people in Jerusalem. They happen in times of the Great Awakening. They can happen by God's grace right here and right now among us. When the people of God hear the word of God and are compelled to obey. A people that wouldn't hearken in times past were made by the grace of God to hearken. They became willing, if you will, in the day of Yahweh's power through Yahweh's word. And they didn't make excuses. The time for excuses were done. They had made excuses for a while. Haggai comes with this message and they didn't rebuff the rebuke. They didn't begin to make excuses. They didn't begin to say, you know, Haggai, you just don't understand everything I have going on. I got a lot going on. They didn't say, you know, Haggai is a bit extreme. I prefer a more balanced approach. They heard the word of the Lord. Whatever their lives' situations were, whether they had little children, whether they had elderly parents, whatever situation they had, whether they had a little margin, whether they had a lot of margin, whatever it was, all of the remnant of the people heard the voice of the Lord through the words of the prophet Haggai, and they obeyed God. This is an amazing moment in history. Look at what the word of God can do. It can compel and bring about obedience. More about what the Word of God might do through Haggai today in your life or in my life. But I want you to see something else the Word of God does. The Word of God also produced holy fear. Again, looking at verse 12, we see the NASB rendering, and the people showed reverence for the Lord. That can also be rendered, and the people feared before the Lord. As a couple of commentators noted, this was the first fruit of hearing. They saw that they had sinned. They saw that God was the one who was chastising them through their circumstances. It's as though God showed up through His proclaimed Word and they felt fear, holy fear, before the face of God. Such a reaction of holy fear, an attitude of reverential trembling, is esteemed highly by God. It is esteemed highly. Isaiah 66 verse 2 The Lord says there, but to this one I will look. To him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. And such a proper trembling is connected with a proper response, with proper action. We see that here. The two are inseparably linked together. But there are other examples. You think of Abraham in Genesis chapter 22 When in obedience to God's command, he goes to Mount Moriah and is about to offer up his son Isaac as an offering. And then we're told, the angel of the Lord says to him in Genesis 22, verse 12, Do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him, 
For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. See, it was a holy fear of God that drove obedience to God. Another example, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7, speaks of Noah. We were told there by faith, Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. And so it was for the people of God in Haggai's day. They heard the word of the Lord and there was a holy fear, a trembling before God. And from that place of holy fear, of not wanting to dishonor God anymore, not wanting to disobey God, not wanting to put God on the periphery and be okay with it, from that place of holy fear, they, by the grace of God, they obeyed. That one fear that is meant to dominate all other fears began to capture their attention. That one fear of God that's meant to dominate all other fears. Whatever fear they had of hostile neighbors, it was overridden by a fear of God. They didn't get approval from the Samaritans, neighbors and so on. They didn't say, all right, we're going to rebuild the temple. We're going to get about the work, but we just got to make sure that we don't deal with the hostile neighbors anymore. It didn't even matter at this point. There was a fear that dominated that fear. They're like, I have to obey God. We have to obey God. We have to do what God says. We have to be about God's business. And they got about God's business. One fear dominated other fears. Irreverence begets disobedience. A case study in this would be somebody like Pharaoh. Just look at Pharaoh's irreverence and you're not surprised by all the disobedience that follows. But where there's holy reverence for the God of the universe, where there's holy reverence, by the grace of God, that begets obedience. Now the people were looking like the people of God again. It's at this point that you have to ask yourself the question, does the Word of God produce these things in me? Does the Word of God compel me to a fresh obedience? When I hear the Word of God proclaimed, do I ever have that sense of holy fear and holy awe in the presence of the Lord? You know, if your answer to those questions are something like, you know, it's been a good 15 years since I've ever, since I felt the fear of the Lord. I don't know why that is, but that should not be. There should be a holy fear about not having felt a holy fear for that long. God's not just speaking to your neighbor. He's speaking to you. He's calling you to put Him at the center of your life. Do you feel the weightiness of that? Do do, do you sense the reality that He is here among us today? And that He is proclaiming His message to His people through the prophet Haggai? Or is this just another time of listening? Another time of going through the motions for a little while, being here and then getting about the business of life around 12.30. I plead with you. I plead with you. Hear the voice of the Lord through the prophet Haggai. God will not tolerate being second fiddle. Thanks be to God, He's so patient with us. He is so gracious. Thanks be to God for the Son of God who died for our sins. But brothers and sisters, that dare not become an excuse to make Him stay on the periphery. 
Grace is not an excuse for disobedience. Grace compels obedience. Whatever the reason is, and there's so many reasons why we cannot maybe feel the holy fear that we ought to feel. Perhaps being so pleased with one's performance that there isn't room for spiritual growth because it's already been maxed out. (laughs) Brushing aside penetrating conviction among things uh, that need to be repented of. Because we say, you know what, rather than actually thinking of the things I need to repent of and the things that God's actually speaking to me about, I'll just, I'll just I'll, I'll undertake ministerial activity so I don't have to actually deal with the repentance that God's calling me to deal with. See, there could be a whole bunch of things because that's easier. I don't need to feel fear with that. I'll just do something and I won't have to feel the holy fear of actually changing my ways, changing my behaviors, and so on. I plead with you by the grace of God and I encourage you at the same time to know that doesn't have to be an exception in your life. Imagine what could happen on a week-in, week-out basis if the majority, not even the totality, but the majority, even the small majority of the reproofs that come forward from the Word of God were heeded. What would that look like? What would that look like in the lives of the people of God? If the rebukes from Scripture were met with humility and godly fear and repentance, every week unforgiveness would be repented of. Mutual love would be kindled afresh in marriages. Fear of man would be squashed by a fear of God. Worldliness would be lamented of. We'd be looking at the world around us and saying, you know what, Lord, if you're taking away so many things we've enjoyed, maybe for the people of God, it's so that you might get our attention. So we're not distracted with all these other things. Thank you. Whatever you have to do to have me put you at the center, I thank you for it. What would happen? What would happen? People would stop wasting time on trivial pursuits and start investing the currency of their lives, their time, in serving others in Jesus' name with a fresh wherewithal to do so. Some might start evangelizing with brethren. Others might actually pray about going to the mission field. Some might use their administrative gifting to help lighten the burden of others. Others might commit to, say, in this local church, cleaning the church (coughs) now. helping with things like that. Others might grow in the grace of giving to see the work of the gospel forwarded. Older men would be praying with younger men. Older women would be taking a Titus 2 approach with younger women. And so on. What would happen if all the people of God heard the word of God even this day and said, what can I do to obey the voice of the Lord? What can I do to serve the people of God? What would happen if everybody in this room had that kind of grace raw reaction? There'd be revival. There'd be awakening here on 266 Wood Avenue. I plead with you. I'm not mad at anybody, by the way. I'm not, I'm not mad. But I'll tell you what. I think we all should have a sense of impatience with a kind of Christianity, an Americanized form of Christianity that is so okay with everything else being at the center, yet God can be put on the periphery and we find justifications for it. I hope you're tired of that. And not just in finding it in other people, but search to see in the way in which it's affected you. That's the key. Because otherwise, you just walk from one trap into another trap. You walked out of one frying pan and into another fire. You want to say, well, how has this affected me? My life. My life. See, what we see in our text is a gracious work of God whereby the Word of God through the working of the grace of God begat repentance and obedience among the remnant in Jerusalem. And such a work of grace, an amazing work of grace, can happen right here today on 266 Wood Avenue. Now I want to see more about who God is. Look at how gracious God is. Look at verse 13. 
Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke by the commission of the Lord to the people, saying, I am with you, declares the Lord. So the people's dispositions were changed in verse 12, right? All of a sudden now, they're obeying. God told them, get up to the mountains, basically get everything ready to rebuild the temple. They do it, and look at how gracious God is. So quickly does Yahweh meet them with a word of tenderness and encouragement. I am with you. Even as the father, in the story of the prodigal son, ran to meet his returning son, it's as though Yahweh meets this returning people with a word of great assurance and comfort. I am with you. Don't miss that. Behold your God right here in Haggai 1 verse 13. He is the God, per language that's found in Isaiah chapter 30 verse 18, who longs to be gracious to his people. That's who he is. It's a serious mistake to think that God's rebuke means the timer of God's compassion has run out. His rebuke is an act of compassion to his people. It's a proof of his love. And within the rebuke is an invitation to be freshly comforted by the God who is gracious. If you're hearing the rebuke of God rightly, then you're seeing that as part and parcel of the equation. That within the rebuke is an invitation to be freshly comforted by the God who is gracious. First thing I want you to see here. Second thing I want you to see is this word of assurance itself. I am with you. I am with you, the Lord told the people. Perhaps we're likely to esteem this promise better if we lightly uh, trace its dissemination in the scriptures. This same promise, I am with you, is a promise that God made to Isaac. Genesis 26.3. The same promise that he made to Jacob at Bethel in Genesis 28.15. It's the promise that he made to Moses. It's the promise that he made to Joshua. It's the promise that he made to Gideon. It's the promise that he made to Jeremiah. It's the promise that Jesus made to his disciples in the Great Commission. It's the promise that Jesus made to Paul. Acts chapter 18, verse 10. It's the promise that God makes to us. We see it in Hebrews 13. I am with you. That's quite a line of love that we are amazingly privileged to stand in, and it's quite a promise that every one of the people of God get to rejoice in. I am with you. God's ultimate gift to His people has always been that, the presence of Himself. That's God's ultimate gift to His people. Even the salvation that we have through Jesus Christ, the forgiveness of sins, what does that lead to? It doesn't just lead to us being forgiven and then separated but not punished by God, separated from Him and not punished. It leads to us being reconciled to Him, brought into relationship with Him forever because the best thing that God could ever give anyone is Himself. And He tells His people, I am with you. And know the difference. We could survey many scriptures to see the difference that that makes. The difference that God's presence makes. David knew he could walk through the valley of the shadow of death and he could fear no evil. For you are with me, he told Yahweh. God told his people, when you walk through the waters, you don't have to walk in fear. You could actually be free of fear when you go through the waters because I will be with you. Isaiah 43, verse 2. The former being Psalm 23, verse 4. Here, within the context of Haggai's ministry, the promise of God's presence was a, um, the primary indicator of a successful outcome. Look, you're doing the work. 
And here's a word of encouragement, I'm with you. And it's the primary indicator of a successful outcome. This is going to work because I'm with you in the midst of the work. They didn't receive a promise that their circumstances would be easy or that there would be smooth sailing all the way and that all opposition would cease. They got something better. God's assurance of his presence. Third thing I want you to note from verse uh, 13. I want you to note where this encouragement came. It came on the pathway of obedience. I think that's worth noting. So understand this. As New Testament Christians, we know that God's Holy Spirit abides in us. We've been sealed by the Holy Spirit. He has taken up residence inside of us. And even though we can grieve Him, He does not leave us. We are sealed by the Holy Spirit for the day of redemption. So He's not going anywhere. Yet at the same time, even in the New Testament, we see that it's often on the pathway of obedience that there is, if you will, a kind of scriptural emphasis of God's abiding presence on that pathway of obedience. I'll give you two examples. Jesus, when he was commissioning his disciples in the Great Commission, it was there that he told them that he would be with them always, even until the end of the age. As they were to be going out, making disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching men to obey everything that I've commanded you. That was the call that they had. And it was in that context he says, I am with you. Also, Paul, in Philippians chapter 4, verse 9, he told the Philippians, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. So while God is always in and always with His new covenant people, the reality of His presence with His people is, if you will, biblically accented on the pathway of obedience. So there's a few things that we can call attention to in verse 13. And that brings us to verses 14 and 15 in the conclusion of chapter 1, and quite a conclusion it is. We read in verses 14 and 15, So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of Darius the king. So here we have a great example of the difference that God's presence among his people can make. God told the people, verse 13, I am with you. And now we see one of the ways in which God was with the people we see that the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, Joshua, and all the remnant of the people. Here, in this context, it speaks to how God brought about these impulses of obedience. He so worked in their minds and inclinations of the same people that he had worked in, by the way, like 18 years earlier. Right? In Ezra chapter 1, we find out that God stirred up their spirits to come back and begin the work of rebuilding the temple. And here God is again stirring their spirits again to continue the work of rebuilding the temple. So here within this context, the idea of God stirring the spirits of these individuals speaks of him bringing about impulses of obedience, working in their minds and inclinations and so on, so that they might undertake the work that had long since been neglected. As an aside, it's worth noting, if you look in the Old Testament, you'll see this kind of language used even with regards to those who had just no desire to glorify God with their actions or behavior. But it would speak nonetheless to God's sovereignty. 
For example, this verb is used to speak of how God stirred up the spirit of Pol, king of Assyria, that is Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, 1 Chronicles chapter 5, verse 26, superintending his council so that he carried away the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. Um, this same word is used to speak of how God stirred up the spirits of the Philistines and the Arabians against Jehoram, 2 Chronicles 21.16 how God stirred the spirit of the king of the Medes against Babylon, Jeremiah 51, verse 11. So it can be used in other contexts to speak speak of how God sovereignly, sinlessly superintends even the impulses of those who do not have his glory in mind whatsoever. Here, however, in this context, it's speaking about him graciously working and bringing about impulses towards the obedience that he commanded. Now, I want you to notice. Notice when this happened. It happened on the 24th day of the sixth month. You see that in verse 15. That's 23 days after the message first came to the people through the prophet Haggai. So what happened after Haggai's initial message? Did the people take 23 days to think about it? Did they take 23 days to kind of deliberate and decide whether or not they were going to obey the Lord? I don't think so. I think when you look at the command to go get timber, to go get wood, to rebuild the temple, and then you see that they obeyed, and then it's 23 23 days later that they begin the process of rebuilding, I think the context is they obeyed right away. And they got cutting down timber, maybe some, as some commentators suggest, they, they finished up their harvesting or whatever they had to do, but they got the timber down from the mountain, they got the supplies they needed, they got ready to do the rebuilding, and then 23 days later, they're ready, they have the timber, they begin the process of rebuilding at that point. Which speaks to something very important on both ends. Their obedience was swift. It was a swift obedience. Sometimes... Even with the people of God that love God, the call could be right there. It's right there in the text of Scripture. And then the reaction could be something like this. Yeah, I'm going to think about that. Yeah, obedience. Yeah. (laughs) God at the center. I'm going to think about that. It's going to be good when I think about that. Like, don't, don't, don't make that mistake. You are called to a swift obedience. If you hear the Lord, if you feel compelled, like, yeah, God's not been at the center, and in times of my life past, I used to do a lot to kind of be about the building of God's kingdom, or I've never had a time in my life where I've been, have been about the building of God's kingdom, and I need to do that right now, I want to encourage you, follow the example of this remnant by the grace of God, and render unto God a swift obedience. It's not going to be a perfect obedience. Right? Even our best of works will be flawed and will fall far short of the perfect work of the Lord Jesus Christ. But nonetheless, by the grace of God, we can offer to God a swift obedience. Imperfect as we are, tainted as we are by sin, we can get about His business. It is amazing. When you think about what God did in the people then, how He stirred up their spirits, it should help us as New Testament Christians to appreciate the new covenant reality that we live with. I'm not denying the fact that we have a responsibility to use language that Paul did with Timothy to stir up the gift of God that is within us. We have that responsibility. You could appeal to 2 Timothy 1.6 for that. But we also joyously live in light of the reality that God works in us both to will and to do His good pleasure. This is everyday life for the Christian. That He's at work in you. The Holy Spirit takes up residence in you. Every day by the grace of God, your spirit can be stirred by the Holy Spirit to obey the living God. 
And what does that do, by the way? It produces at least two things, humility and expectation. It produces humility because if you do get about, whatever it looks like for you to have God at the center of your life, whatever it looks like for you to be freshly committed to service in this local church, whatever it looks like for you to be about the building of the temple of the church, the body of Christ, the people of God, whatever that looks like, you know at the end of the day, it was the grace of God that worked in you. You don't take credit for it. You're like, the Lord stirred my spirit via the Holy Spirit. You could say like the Apostle Paul, I labored, yes, but not I, but the grace of God that was in me. So it produces humility. It also produces, I think, expectation. Because if you think about the Holy Spirit working within you, you're like, I can't, I just can't conceive of me being idle and lethargic in this kind of indefinite way, not because my confidence is in me, it's not, but because my confidence is in the power and the person of the Holy Spirit. So I think it produces humility and I think it produces expectancy. Expectancy. With that being said, I want to draw some concluding applications from this monumental moment. And it is a monumental moment. If you could speak with Isaiah, if you could speak with Jeremiah, they would tell you, monumental moment. Right here. End of Haggai. I want you to know the people didn't hear an an audible voice. They didn't. But they did hear God's voice through the words of Haggai the prophet. You see that very clearly in verse 12. They heard the voice of Yahweh in hearing the words of Haggai the prophet. Now that synonymous nature of those two things is not simply to be observed. For us, it's to be perpetually embraced. We are to embrace that. And if embraced, the expectation is that when the Word of God lands upon the soil of such a believing heart, a heart that believes he or she is actually hearing the words of God through the Scripture, obedience will spring forth. Now, I just want to say there are some things that can obstruct that harvest. The Word of God coming to you and then obedience springing forth, there are some things that can obstruct that harvest. Arrogance will have a person believing that the message is for someone else and not for them. Indifference will have a person believing that they are better off reading something else or hearing something else because the words of the Haggai, the prophet, don't really have much application to them or won't make much difference in their lives. Unrepentance will keep a person clinging to the order of priorities that God is calling them to adjust. Unbelief, saying the power of God's word to actually change you, is dishonoring to God and it's an impediment to receiving the benefits of such a proclamation. If God's word can bring forth creation out of nothing, if God's word can cause a dead man to come to life, if God's word can calm the sea, you can't convince me it's not powerful enough to change you or me. It's that powerful. And if you have the Holy Spirit abiding within you, there you have all the ingredients for a fresh obedience. Think of what changed in the lives of the remnant and what changes might occur within you. I think that's exciting. What could happen right now? Imagine. I know it's hard. But imagine what would it look like if your life was freshly committed to the work of God and the worship of God? What would happen? And let me remind you of the utmost motivation that you have. If you are in Christ, you have the utmost motivation to be about building this New Testament temple, the church that Christ is already doing and has been doing and will continue to do. He is building His church. You have the greatest motivation. You are the temple of the living God only because the Son of God laid down His life for you. 
He, speaking of His body, said, destroy this temple in three days I will raise it up. And because the temple of His body was destroyed, you and I, by the grace of God, are made temples of the living God. A corporate temple. He's the one, Jesus Christ, who's the embodiment of the offices that you see in verse 1 of this amazing prophecy. He's the embodiment of it. He's the embodiment of the high priest. Joshua the high priest, he's an arrow pointing to the high priest who was to come, who was going to offer up himself, and himself was going to be the sacrifice. Zerubbabel, the governor, Darius, the king, they, they are, if you will, arrows pointing to the one who would be the governor, the head of his people, the church, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the one who would be the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Haggai, the prophet, he's an arrow pointing to the one who's the ultimate prophet with a capital P. The one who not only proclaims the word of God, but is the word of God incarnate. It's this one that laid down his life for you so that you could be about his work and enjoy it and enjoy him forever. What motivation you have to be about this process. To serve the one who loved you and gave himself for you. He, that one, the Lord Jesus Christ, he's calling you to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. He is calling you to be about the building that he is about. The building up of his church. And whatever competitors to the throne that, they, that there are, whatever just competes for your attention, whatever competes for your affection, whatever justification you may find in your fallen frame at a given point to be disconnected, disinterested, or indifferent, I plead with you to hear the voice of the Lord through the Word of God and to put God at the center. To actually be open to a probing of God's Spirit. To actually let the Holy Spirit probe you in such a way so that things that maybe are beneath the surface and you'd rather not deal with are actually addressed and maybe by the grace of God you say, I'm repenting of these things. There's a lot of ways, there's a lot of ways to deceive ourselves into thinking that God is at the center when He's not. And I can't, I can't in one fell swoop unpack every example of self-deception that could happen to us. But I know that if we're on the alert for that self-deception... And if we're by the grace of God, humbly ready to receive the rebuke of the Lord, even as by the grace of God the people were, then hopefully this harvest won't be obstructed. And all of a sudden in this place, there'll be so many people who are saying, I am ready by the grace of God for a fresh work of obedience. I am ready to be committed to the building up of this New Testament temple, the church. In my own life, in this church, in this community, in my family, and so on, I am ready by the grace of God, whatever it takes. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord. We thank you for the grace that was wrought in the lives of this remnant in Jerusalem, the way in which you brought about impulses of obedience through. Zerubbabel and Joshua and all the remnant, Lord. And Father, we pray that Your Word would beget in us a fresh commitment and a fresh obedience. May there be, Father, in us a sense of holy fear before the face of the Lord where we want to offer to You not some sort of mangled offering of our lives as though You are secondary, 
but where we, by the grace of God, want to offer up ourselves as living sacrifices, offering you, as it were, the first fruits of our lives, the the totality of ourselves as living offerings, so that you might be well pleased, so that you might take pleasure in that offering and be glorified. Oh, Father, please protect us. There are so many ways in which that which ought to be on the periphery can become central. There's so many ways in which we could justify putting you on the back burner. And Father, I pray that in this church, Lord, and among your people, there might just be a fresh work of grace whereby hands all over the place are put to the plow together and your people are serving and committing to see what you might do among us here. You are awesome, Lord. You are gracious and greatly to be praised. And your greatness is unsearchable. And Father, we thank you, Lord. We thank you for uh, the pointer that Haggai and Zerubbabel and Joshua and even Darius are to the one who's infinitely greater than they and infinitely greater than us, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We thank you for his perfect obedience that would secure forgiveness for our disobedience. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for grace greater than all of our sin. We thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit abiding in us so as to bring about impulses of obedience when we find ourselves given to excuses or lethargy. And we pray, Heavenly Father, in Jesus' name, that you might so work in our lives and in this church that whether it's our lives individually or this church corporately, that you might take pleasure in what is offered to you here in our lives, in our service, in our worship that you might take pleasure in it and be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.